You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. If you ever received a threatening letter from someone, a letter where uh, someone writes to you and they are letting you know there's some things that they're upset about or things they need to change, and if you don't change them, then uh, maybe they're going to come and fix you. (laughs) And I'm not talking about a threatening letter from a crazy person, you know, a crazy mad person. I mean, if, if you've got a threatening letter from someone you know is just off the wall, there's a place you can put that. It's called File 13. <clears throat> because you understand they're crazy. What they're saying doesn't matter anyway. And, and you're not really concerned about it. But I'm, I'm talking about a threatening letter that is a letter that maybe you earned. It's a letter that is written from someone that, that cares And they're pointing out some things that you really, really need to change. Sometimes a letter like that will start out really good. Matter of fact, let me encourage you. If you're going to kindly rain on somebody's parade, give them a parade to start with in the first of the letter a little bit. Try and find some good things that you can write about before you kindly drop the hammer on them. So it might have been a letter that was like that. It might have started out with some very, very positive things. And you're reading that letter, and it's just kind of pumping you up, and your head's swelling out. You're thinking, man, you know. And then all of a sudden, you get to the point of the letter, and you, ah. You ever had letters like that? So I have before. So I've kind of learned now, you know, after years, if I get a letter that really, really sounds positive to start with, instead of getting too pumped up, I kind of need to be reading, thinking, all right, where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? You know, there's bound to be something, you know, negative that's going to be somewhere here. What about if you were to get a threatening letter from Jesus? Now, when I say that, that almost, for some of you, might go outside the realm of your thinking about who Christ is. Because we tend to want to keep him as maybe that little bundle of joy in Bethlehem. Or at least we want to keep him as the tender lamb of God who cares so much for us that he died for our sins, and we think of him in that regard as being the tender lamb of God. And he is that. I mean, thank God for that, right? But you realize that same tender lamb of God is also the same one that chased the money changers out of the temple and got a whip and beat them out of the temple area? Do you realize that that same Jesus is the one that the Bible tells us near the end of Revelation, is coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven with him to exact out the wrath of God upon this world. You see, you you can't just keep him as that baby at Christmas. You, You can't even just keep him as the tender lamb of God that loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins. Thank God he is those things, but he's also this other stuff. And because we just think of him in the terms of being the the loving lamb of God, sometimes we minimize his full character, and we need to understand his full character is one of being a holy God. And sometimes he will send threatening letters to us. He might, you know, say, look, I see what you're doing. I see all the good stuff. Thank God for that, da 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 But I got a few things against you. And that's what Jesus does in this letter that we are looking at today. He even tells them this. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. That's kind of an ominous thing, isn't it? To think about Jesus coming and fighting against us oh yeah he'll do that with the world hey he writes this letter to a church 
We just want the image of Jesus loving us. But he writes a letter to a church. And he warns them, either repent or I'm going to come and fight against you. Look at what he says in these verses. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Some translations say Pergamus, but the NIV has this Pergamum. Most other translations do also. But he says, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, after he just had said some very positive things, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there in this church that he's writing to who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only by him who receives it. Today we're going to look at Jesus writing a more or less threatening letter to this church in Pergamon. He starts out with some good things, and then he kind of drops the hammer. And he tells them why He's writing. There's some issues that he's concerned about. As I've tried to say every Sunday in this series, I know when you hear Revelation, you know, people start thinking, oh, you know, deep prophecy, you know, things like that. That's not where we're really going in this series because Jesus says some very practical things to these churches that I think we need to grab hold of in our day and time and let it be practical truth for our churches and practical truth for our individual lives. And I'm telling you that because a moment ago when I said something about the, you know, the white stone with someone's name on it, that uh, only the one who receives it knows what it means, some of you might have thought, oh boy, we get to find out what the white stone is. I'm sorry. No, you don't. You want to know why? I don't know. Nobody knows for sure. So since you don't know for sure, why do I just guess at it? Well, we need to look at this passage and get some stuff we know for sure. And some stuff we know for sure is this. Jesus writes to this church and said, yeah, you're doing some good things, but I've got a few things against you. And you need to straighten those things out or I'm going to come and get you more or less. I'm going to come and fight against you. First thing I want you to notice this morning is this. Let's get a, a picture that Jesus gives us of himself because we have a threatening image of Christ in this text. A threatening image of who Jesus is. He said to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That might be an image of Jesus we're not comfortable with. Because to be honest with you, when you think about somebody having a double-edged sword, most of the time that kind of gets your attention. I mean, if someone's walking down the street carrying a sword out in public, you're going to keep an eye on that dude because you want to understand what he's up to, and he might be after you with a sword. The first service, my son-in-law was here, and uh, he works in the North Police Department, and he's going to be going to do something on duty in a little while, so he came in uniform. Some of you might not relate to a sword as much as this. I I told the first crowd, I said, maybe I ought to have Matt, my son-in-law, come up and show you his gun. Because if you're out walking in public and someone's carrying like this big, huge, you know, 44 Magnum or 50 caliber revolver, you're going to kind of pay attention to that. It's like a wake-up call. You're going to wonder, what's up with that? And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's writing and he's saying, these are the words. What I'm about to say is from the one that has this double-edged sword. He's writing to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And we've told you that each week that the word angel means messenger. It's literally him writing to the pastor of that church. And he's writing to a church located in a place that's called Pergamum. 
The, the word means fortified. It, it means a tower or a castle. Some translate it by the word married. See, if, if you were to leave Smyrna, which was the last church we've looked at. And here's what happened with this. Jesus told John to write out a message to these seven churches, write it on one scroll. John sent a messenger out from the Isle of Patmos to go and deliver it to each one of the churches. He stopped at Ephesus first. Next church on the way was Smyrna. Next church from there is Pergamum. So after he would leave Smyrna, he would kind of go by the Aegean Sea going northeast and go up by a river about 10 miles until he would come to this city. And this city was built on about a thousand foot rise hill. So it was like this city's on a natural fortress. It had been real easy to defend and, it, and it's up there kind of like a city on a hill. They were very educated. It was like the center of Greek culture. They, they had a library there that had 200,000 volumes. Guys, that's a lot of books back then. They tell us it was the largest known library in the world except for one other. The one in Egypt, in Alexandria, was the largest. We're even told that the uh, people in Pergamum tried to draw away a librarian from Alexandria, and Pharaoh got so mad about it, he quit sending papyrus to them so they couldn't even print any more books in Pergamon. So what they did was start making parchment made from animal skins. That's where it came from. They had to do it in order to have something to write on so they could maintain their huge library. They, they were very cultured. They thought of themselves as being very smart, very philosophical in their thinking. The problem with the church in this town was, I think, implied by what's said here. Pergamon was fortified. Some translate the word married. And when we read what Jesus says here, it means this. They were fortified or married to some very worldly, sinful practices. Jesus is writing to this group of believers in this church called Pergamum because they were compromising. Now, compromise isn't always bad. Sometimes compromise can be good, you know? Your wife tells you to wash the dishes, you compromise, you wash the dishes, it's a good thing. But sometimes compromise can be very bad. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. If we compromise the Word of God, if we compromise what God says, if we compromise God's will in an effort just to kindly you know, blend into the world or make worldly people happy around us, that type of compromise is wrong. And that is what was happening in this city. There were some believers there in this church that were compromising with the city and the world around them. They were winking at sexual immorality. They were thinking it's okay to go eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols. It's okay to go to these worldly temples that are built here in this Greek city. And they had just, just big compromise taking place in their lives. That's why Jesus shows himself in this threatening image. If you want to get a picture of what Jesus thinks about compromise or a worldly church, all you got to do is see what Jesus says about himself. He says, I'm the one that's got a sharp double-edged sword. I'm the one that's got a problem. I've got this sword, and I'm going to come fight against you if you don't wake up and understand it is wrong for you to compromise what I want in your life. It is wrong for you to compromise and live like a sinful, worldly church. Some people call it, some theologians call Pergamon the worldly church or the lenient church. The worldly church or the lenient church. And that's why Jesus has an issue with them, because they were being very worldly and they were being very lenient in their practice and what they were doing. He writes the letter to the pastor to start with. Now, maybe the pastor needed to be reminded who's in charge, because the pastor is not in charge. You did hear that correctly. I am not in charge of this church. You want to know who's in charge of the church? The one that has the sharp two-edged sword is his church. He died for the church. 
Maybe the pastor of that program needed to be reminded of that. Hey, you're not in charge of this church here in this region. I am the one that's in charge of it. Maybe that's why he got the letter first. Or maybe that pastor's heart was broken over the worldliness and the leniency of some of the members in the body of that church. And he's being encouraged that Jesus is now writing a letter telling the church, hey, you better wake up and quit doing what you're doing or I'm going to come fight against you with a sword. In this particular city, the proconsul or the governor would be the way we'd think of it, of the city of Pergamon, had been given a sword by the Roman government, the right to bear the sword. And the right to bear the sword meant this. It gave him authority even to the point of executing people if necessary. Normally, someone in a local region wouldn't just have that ability to execute somebody. He'd have to kind of check it out with Rome first, and then Rome say, yeah, you can execute them. But this governor, this proconsul of the city, had been given the authority to carry that sword. He was given the authority even to execute somebody's life. So that runs maybe in the background of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, hey, the governor there's got a sword. I want you to understand something. I'm really the one with the sword. I'm really the one with all authority. I am really the one with all power, and you need to be paying attention to what I say and worshiping what I say. Guys, I want you to listen to me, and this is not a political statement whatsoever. We are not to be about worshiping government. God created government, thank God for government, but when it comes down to government and what's right or what's wrong, I don't care what a Democrat says or a Republican says or the Tea Party says. I care what God says. The problem we have in a lot of our churches is that we have people that are stronger Democrats, stronger Republicans, stronger Tea Party members than they are Christians. And what it ought to be with us is what Jesus says about it. On my Facebook, at one time on my Facebook, I had listed beside political views, conservative on my Facebook page. And I read a friend's Facebook page who uh, leads a, a, a contemporary band. And, and I saw what he put beside his political views. And here's what he had. Whatever is the closest to the heart of Jesus. I thought, man, that's right. And I went right back to my Facebook, and I changed my political view to this. Whatever is closest to the heart of Jesus. Because that's where we ought to stand. Whatever Jesus wants. So Jesus is saying, look, you've got a governor there that bears a sword, but you need to understand something. I'm the real one that's in authority. I'm the one that has this sword, this double-edged sword, and you need to recognize that. See, we just want to have Jesus, like I said earlier, as the tender lamb of God. Thank God he is that, but he is also the judge. He's also almighty God. He's also the one that will return one day to this earth to exact out God's judgment on this earth. And you can really have it two ways. I'll try and think and come back to this in the invitation. If I don't, here it is now. You can have Jesus as your Savior, or you can have Jesus as your judge. You choose. Because when he went to the cross, and he died on the cross for your sins, there he paid the price for your sins, and your sins were judged through the shed blood of Jesus. So you can either trust in Christ as your Savior, and him be your, sa- and him be your Savior, and your sins already be judged at the cross, or you can say no to Jesus and be judged yourself one day for your sins. Thank God he is our Savior, but he is also coming as judge revelation chapter one jesus gave this image of himself said in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword so here's the image you need to get it's not just an image of some guy holding a sword jesus holding a sword in his hand jesus said the double-edged sword that i have comes out of my mouth That means the very words of God are like a double-edged sword. That means this Bible needs to be what gets our attention. This Bible needs to be what has authority over our lives. Someone carrying a sword looked like authority. Here's God's authority. And Jesus said, it is coming out of his mouth. Look what we're told in Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active. This is not an archaic book. 
Someone told one of our members one time years ago out on visitation that, well, you know, the Bible was written back in olden times and everything like that and just something that old. I don't think we ought to have to guide our lives by and everything. And he told me later, he said, I really didn't know how to respond to it. So I told him, I said, next time ask him how old the sun is and if he still enjoys the warmth from the sun and the light from the sun because the sun's pretty old, but I'm glad we have it every day, amen? (laughs) This is more current than next year's newspaper. It is living and it is active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. If you have a double-edged sword, if you swing it this way, it cuts. If you swing it that way, it cuts. And the Word of God will cut our lives if we allow it to. And a cut is not always fun, is it? I mean, even a paper cut hurts, right? You get a paper cut, and you know you got a paper cut because you feel it, because it brings pain. Sometimes this word will bring pain into our lives, but it's necessary pain because sometimes we need wake-up calls. We need to understand we've been cut by the Word of God. I'm sorry, Zach. (laughs) Zach's over here that we prayed for earlier and everything for cutting his thumb. He's over here just agreeing. You knew last night when you got cut, didn't you? Didn't happen by accident. You had to go get some stitches, right? That's what the Bible does. It says it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We need to allow the Word of God to penetrate our lives. It needs to penetrate our heart, our thoughts, our actions, our choices that we make in our life. We need to allow the Bible to penetrate us like that. It goes on and it says this two-edged sword, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Hey, if you're wondering if your attitude is right, here's how to find out. Check it out in the Bible. If you're wondering if the thought processes that you're having in your mind are okay, check it out in the Word of God. Allow the Bible to judge the way you think in your mind, the attitudes that you have in your life. Allow the Bible to do that. It's a two-edged sword. So to begin with, Jesus gives us a threatening image of himself in this passage of Scripture. And it might not be an image we're comfortable with because we love baby Jesus or Jesus with his arms wide open where we can run and jump in his lap like a little kid. And I love that part of Jesus too. But I'm also glad we have a Jesus who is the King of kings and is the Lord of lords and does have all authority. And he has a word that comes out of his mouth that's as sharp as a two-edged sword. And we need to allow that Jesus to give us a wake-up call. Because that's what Jesus is doing to this group of believers in Pergamon who are kindly doing some good stuff, and we'll see that in just a moment. But they're also allowing some things to happen that shouldn't be happening. And Jesus said, you need to change that. Or guess what? I'm coming. I'm the guy with the two-edged sword. I'm coming. Second thing I want you to get out of this passage is this. A terrible environment for a church. A terrible environment for a church. Pergamon would not have been the easiest place to plant a church. And Jesus writes to them and he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Man, think about that. Where Satan, they're living in a city trying to plant a church, trying to grow a church in a city where Satan has erected his throne. And that's Jesus saying that. He said, yet, even though Satan is trying to erect his throne there, yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. And then he says, where Satan lives. I mean, it's not the best environment, not the best place to be thinking about raising your family, moving there, starting a church. How many of you today, if you were thinking about moving somewhere, you get with your real estate agent and you're kind of telling them the kind of house you want, you know, how many rooms, what you want it to look like. You're kind of letting them know what kind of schools you want, you know, what kind of environment on the lake or whatever, you know, wherever you'd like to live. And then you also tell your real estate agent, by the way, I also want to be a city where Satan has his throne. I really want to move to a city where Satan lives, and the word that's used here for lives means to dwell permanently. That's the kind of city I want. 
But sometimes our cities and towns in America, you know, maybe they won some type of award, and you're driving into that city, and there's a sign at the city, you know, border there to where it says this, you know, like governor's award or presidential award or whatever, you know, kind of signifying something special about that city. If you're to be driving into Pergamon, the sign that Jesus put on it is this, the city where Satan's throne exists, where Satan lives. Not a very easy place. And we live, guys, in a culture today that is not a very easy place to serve Jesus. It's not a very easy place to stand for Christ. It is a place that can be very difficult. I can, you know, we might not like to deal in terms like this, but I'm telling you, wake up, church. Satan is wanting to erect his throne in America. He's wanting to have his way in America, in your life, in my life, in your children's life, in the life of even churches. That's what he's up to. It was a very difficult environment in that day and time for a church. And we live in a difficult environment today. So there's some things you need to know that Jesus says here. First of all, Jesus says, I know where you live. Jesus knows where you live. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, let me explain to you what he means. Because some of you have heard someone say, or you might have told someone before that made you mad, hey, I know where you live. You ever had someone say, I know where you live. You better be careful about that attitude. Don't follow the wrong person home. I arrested a guy one time, one night, and he was trying to pull a gun. And I arrested him Went back when I was in law enforcement. The very next night, he followed me all the way out to where my house was. And then he knew where I lived. So I told him the next day, you follow me home and you mess with my family, I will cut your car in two with a machine gun I've got in the back of my car. <laughs> I wasn't lying. I had one in the back of my car. Right, Mike? That's another ex-cop. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, listen, I know where you live. You better straighten up or I'll come see you. What Jesus is saying, I understand what you're facing. I understand what you're dealing with. I realize it's a difficult culture to live in. I understand the persecution that exists there. I understand how difficult it is for you to be sharing my faith with other people. And you see, you need to gain comfort from that yourself. Because if you are in a difficult circumstance at work trying to share Jesus, you know, at home, wherever it is, Jesus knows where you're living. He knows what you're facing. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He understands everything you're going through. And Jesus is not ill-equipped to help us. He knows exactly how to strengthen us, exactly how to help us serve him even in a difficult culture. And Jesus writes to them and he said, listen, I know where you live. Why would Jesus call this a city where Satan was erecting his throne? Probably several reasons. One reason was probably this. In this city, they had four major temples built to false gods. The first temple was to Zeus, the false Greek god, Roman god. Zeus was considered the god or the father of all gods. And also the father of all men. They had a temple there where people went to worship him. They had another temple built in this city for Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and warfare. So it's like, all right, if we want to be smart, we'll go over there and hang out at Athena's temple a little bit. If we want to win battles with our army, we'll go and we'll pray to her and trust to her and sacrifice to her. They had another temple built to Dionysus. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine and six. They had a temple built to a god of wine. Let's go get drunk. And of sex, let's go down to the temple where the temple prostitutes are there and we can actually worship God by having sex with the temple prostitutes. 
Maybe that's why Jesus said that's where Satan's throne was. Because that's like having a church to where the church's focus is, let's get drunk <laughs> and let's have sex. That'd probably work in our culture, wouldn't it? Regrettably. That would attract people. Maybe that's why Jesus called this church the place, the city, where this church was the place where Satan was erecting his throne. Their main god of the city was Eclepius. Eclepius was considered the god of medicine and healing. People from all over that region would travel to that city thinking they could be healed. His symbol was a snake. Hey, do you ever notice on medical emblems today there's a snake that's wrapped around? That's where it comes from. But they had all these temples built of these false gods. Also very strong and very prevalent in the city of Pergamon was this. The cult of the emperor. Or other words known as the imperial cult. And that is this. That's where people would worship Caesar as though Caesar was God. Matter of fact, a little bit of background on Pergamon is this. They were the first city that was given approval to build a temple to a Caesar who was still sitting in authority. So they built a temple to a man that was still alive and worshipped him as though he were God. Maybe that's why Jesus looked at this place and he said, You are there in a church where Satan lives. And I'm just telling you guys, we live in a culture that is very similar in a lot of ways. Oh, we don't have any temples built to idols. It depends on what you call an idol. It depends on what you are allowing to take first place in your life instead of Jesus. It depends upon where you are bowing down to worship instead of Jesus. We live in a culture that is very difficult place for us to stand for Christ. And that's where they were. The comfort, in fact, is this. Jesus knows that. He knows what you're facing. He knows what I'm facing. Jesus not only knew where they lived, he also tells them this. Jesus knows what you do for him. And I want you to know something. That's a big, huge thing because a lot of times we fail to say thank you even at church. And, and it's easy to happen. I can get so busy. You don't understand. You know, my, my wife will tell me all the time, well, someone's trying to talk to you and then you got distracted over here. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm, I'm an ADD pastor or something like that. I don't know. But, you know, I, 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 I get pulled in like, you know, 190 different directions after one service. <laughs> Sometimes. So I can get so distracted, I might not think to say thank you as much as I should. And if I don't, I'm sorry, but here's the deal with that. Someone that means more than me says thank you, and that's Jesus. Because Jesus says, I know what you're doing for me. Look what he said to them. Yet you remain true. He said, even though you're in a city where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives, he looks at these believers, at least part of these believers in the church of Pernagum, and he says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, when he was put to death in your city, the city where Satan lives. Look at some of the words that are used there. Let me just kind of break that out as we go through it. The word remain, when he says you've remained true to me or you've remained faithful to my name, it means to use strength. It means to seize or retain or to hold fast. So Jesus is looking at this group of believers who's in a city where Satan has his throne. And he said, even though you're facing persecution, he said, you have decided that you're going to hold on to my character. You're going to hold on to my name. That's really what the word name means in Hebrew thought. It means who the person was. So Jesus is bragging on them. And Jesus is saying, you are holding on to who I am. You're holding on to my character. And he said, you didn't renounce. You didn't contradict or reject or disavow the fact that you belong to me. Even though people were being killed because they were following me. 
He said, you held on to your faith. You held on to the persuasion, to the moral conviction that you had in your life that Jesus is your only hope, that Jesus is the one that died on the cross for you, that Jesus is your only means of salvation. He's saying you didn't turn loose of it. Even in the face of persecution, you held on. Even though, look at the next slide. Even in the days of Anubis, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. The word Antipas means this, his name. Meant against all or opposite. He kind of earned that name. <laughs> because evidently he was against everything worldly and for everything Jesus wanted. That sounds like a good way to be to me. That sounds like the way we ought to be. We ought to be against everything that is against Jesus and for everything that Jesus is for. That's who he was by his life. He was so much like that. And by the way, he, he was ordained by John himself, who writes this letter, to be the pastor at one time of the church in Pergamon. He was the bishop there in this city. And he stood so faithfully for Jesus that he had persecution and pressure against him all the time. Somebody complained to him one time in the city, and they said, Anubis, the world is against you. That's what they told him. The whole world is against you. They're trying to tell him, you might as well give up. The whole world is against you. You know what he said in return? He said that I'm against the world. See, that needs to be the way we are as Christians. If the world is against us, that's fine. But I'm going to be for Jesus. Years ago, Billy Sunday, some of you probably heard about him. Some of you have never heard about him because you've never read much about church history or know much about him. He was, you know, really famous evangelist years ago. Somebody came up and complained to him. And they said, Billy, you're all the time rubbing the fur the wrong way. Billy said, turn the cat around. <laughs> and you see, that's the deal. If we're going the way of, of the world, that's the wrong direction. We need to turn the cat around and head God's direction. And Anubis was saying this. If the world is against me, that's fine. I will be against the world. He said, I'm standing for Jesus no matter what. And he had to seal that with his own blood. Because he was arrested and taken to a place where they had this large oven that was made to look like a bull, a brass bull. And it was an oven. It had a door in the side of it. And they took Antipas there and they told him to renounce his faith in Christ. If not, they were going to throw him alive inside of this large brass bull. And he refused, of course, to renounce his faith. And they opened the door and they threw him alive inside this idol that they had made to look like a bull. And they threw him inside the oven, the belly of that bull, and they burned him to death. Why? Simply because he was for Jesus and against the world. Jesus said he was my faithful witness. The word is martus in the Greek. We get our word martyr from it in the English. He sealed his testimony with his own blood. He was a faithful witness, a trustworthy witness. The word in the city literally means near beside you in the vicinity of you. In other words, he's telling these believers in Pergamon, hey, you are right there and you know they killed the pastor. They threw him in an oven and they cooked him alive and you still say, stayed faithful to me. Imagine the pressure to do the opposite. Imagine the pressure if you were to hear, hey, this week, we heard they arrested the pastor and they threw him alive in the oven and they cooked him. Would you not have a little bit of pressure on you to think, hmm, they did that to the pastor. I better not show up at church this week. That's what they're going to do to somebody that says they're a Christian following Jesus. I think I better go the other direction in my life. And yet, this group of people, in light of seeing that type of persecution, they were staying faithful to Jesus. And Jesus is bragging on them. We're in the sweet part of the letter still. Jesus is saying, man, I love what you're doing. I, I, I see what you've done. I know what you've done for me. Right in this place where Satan lives. He's bragging on them for how they served him and how they had stood for him. But... Now we get to the point of the letter. 
And I want to close out by talking to you about this confrontation that Jesus gives to this group of believers. Jesus gives a tough confrontation to this church in Pernigam. Jesus, after bragging on them the sweet part of the letter, all of a sudden he gets to the point, he drops the hammer, and he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said, I have a few things against you. He's not writing to the lost world. He's writing to a church in the city of Pernigam. How would you like it for Jesus to write you a letter? Or day three a letter? And say, I see what you're doing, but I have a few things against you. Now, before you get pious and holy and act like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm fine, I'm cool. Here's the reality of it. And if you'll be honest, you'll admit it. Jesus does have a few things against all of us probably. Because none of us have arrived yet. None of us are maybe as far along our spiritual path as we should be with Jesus. All of us could be doing better. You understand you can also sin by failing to do good stuff. You don't have to be doing bad stuff to sin. There's sins of commission. That means the stuff you do. There are also sins of omission. That means stuff that you are failing to do. He tells him, I've got a few things against you. Look at what he tells them the things are that he has against them. First one is this. Jesus confronts them because of wrong doctrine that enticed wrong actions. He he, he confronts them about holding on to the teachings of Balaam. Now, it's impossible this morning in the length of this service for us to go and read everything the Old Testament says from Numbers 22 through Numbers 25 about Balaam and a king there by the name of Balak. So I'm going to give you an overview because we could not read all of that this morning. If you want to follow along in your Bible, that's cool. You can follow along and see what I'm telling you is the truth. I encourage you to do that. You ought to always check out and be sure I'm telling you what the Bible says. See, somebody can get up here and spout out Elizabeth in English to you and you think, oh, that sounds like Bible. It might not be. More or less, what Jesus accuses them of is this. He's accusing them of having wrong doctrine that leads to wrong actions. The the story of Balaam is this. The children of Israel, they were coming through, going to the promised land, and they were whipping everybody. And Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, kind of got a little bit concerned because he thought, man, they're going to wipe us out too. So Balak, King Balak, knew of a of a prophet, more or less, by the name of Balaam. And he had heard whoever Balaam curses, God curses, and whoever Balaam blesses, God blesses. So here's what Balak decided to do. He sent some guys to see Balaam and, and told them, hey, King Balak wants you to come over here, and he wants you to curse the children of Israel, and if you do it, we'll give you some money. Now, Balaam at least had the sense to go and pray about it and ask God whether he should go or not. So he prays and he asks God whether to go. And God says, no, don't go. It won't matter if you go. He said, I bless this people. They're my people. You can't curse them if you want to. They belong to me. That's more or less what God was telling Balaam. So they go back and take the message to Balak. Balak turns around and sends more messengers. And he ups the ante a little bit. And he says, well, if you'll come do this, I'll pay you more money. So Balaam goes and he asks God again, should I go? Now you have to read between the lines to get this. You see, Balaam didn't need to ask God again. God had already told him, no, don't go and here's why. And now because there's more money involved, 
Balaam decides, well, I'll go pray again and ask God. God already said, don't go. That was settled. God said, don't go. So he prays and he asks God about it. And the, the idea is more money. In other words, Balaam's nothing but a hireling, guys. He's in, quote, ministry for the money. That's the only reason he's in it. And on the way there to go see Balak, here's what happens. The angel of the Lord shows up in the pathway, and Balaam is so blind to it, he can't even see him. But the donkey he's riding sees it. And the donkey turns aside because the angel of the Lord's going to take Balaam's head off. Because God had already said don't go, and he went and asked God about going simply because there's more money involved. And then the donkey turns aside the second time. And Balaam's mad. He's beating on his donkey. And then the third time, the angel of the Lord positions himself in such a way that the donkey could not turn one side or the other. So the donkey just kind of lays down with Balaam on top of it. And Balaam gets mad and he's beating the donkey again. And all of a sudden, God performs a miracle and he lets the donkey talk. I'm just telling you, it's a bad day in your life when you miss God so much that you can't even see God right ahead of you, and he has to use a jack to talk to you. Some of you will get that later. (laughs) You might think we've got one talking to me now. Well, I felt like that before. He goes ahead, the angel of the Lord explains to him, you can go on, but you better say what I tell you to say when you get there. Balaam takes Balaam up and shows him the children of Israel. He refuses three times to curse them. Balaam gets mad, and he said, I was going to pay you this money, but he still refuses to curse them. But behind the scenes, something happened that you might not pick up on. Because in Numbers 25, we find out that Balak sent some women down who enticed the Israelite men to have sex with them, and as a result of that, they worshiped their false gods. Now, in order to find out what happened, we have to go ahead to Numbers 31, and in Numbers 31, we're told this. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice. Balaam, behind the scenes, told Balak, here's how you can trip up the children of Israel. Send women down there, tempt them, get them to have sex with them, get them to worship their false gods, and God will put a plague against them, and at least it will slow down the children of Israel for right now. So in other words, false teaching led to wrong actions in their lives. And there are people who are holding on in the church of Pernigam to that type of mentality. And they had wrong doctrine. The wrong doctrine being, it's okay to go to the temple. It's okay to go down there and have sex with the temple prostitutes. We're going to be open-minded in our church. You know, we're not going to say stuff like that's a sin. So they were holding to that type of attitude, to that type of teaching. And here's the problem with it. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong actions. And it still does that, guys. That's why it is imperative we have right doctrine in our churches because if you adopt wrong beliefs in your life and wrong doctrine in your life, it will lead to wrong actions in your life. And you'll get on a pathway away from God. And Jesus has to come and say, Hey, I'm the one that has the double-edged sword, and you better straighten up or I'm going to come and fight against you. They were enticed. They were tripped up. That's what the word means. They were trapped. And they committed sexual immorality. The same word we get our word, porno or pornography fun. See, I, I don't want you to be too comfortable right now. I'm intentionally. It's, it ought to be uncomfortable. It really should be right now. It ought to be a little bit intense right now. Because some of you might be thinking, oh, but we don't have those temples on this hill like they had in Pergam. We don't have a temple to like a sex goddess and a wine goddess and all kinds of things like that. No, maybe you've got a temple called the Internet and you've been looking at things you shouldn't look at or some magazines, some things you shouldn't look at. 
Because that same word for sexual immorality is a word we get porno or pornography some. So maybe it ought to be a little bit uncomfortable right now because you might be thinking, you know, I'm, I'm cool. We're not going to any temples and worshiping like that. You might be. You might be worshiping at a temple that you don't think is a temple because you're going there and it's against God's will for your life. And you've adopted wrong beliefs in your life like, well, I'm on my way to heaven. Jesus died on the cross for me. Praise God. And it don't matter how I live my life or what I do. And Jesus is saying this, don't let wrong doctrine lead you into sin. I'm ready to come straighten you out with this sword that comes out of my mouth. Second thing Jesus confronts them about is this. He confronts them because of wrong doctrine established in a hierarchy within the church. He said, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this, and we saw what it means. The word for Nicolaitans is built on the word of Nicholas in the Greek. And here's the next slide, guys, to the word study. It means this, it means victorious over the people, it means someone ruling over the people. It's also a word that meant heretic. Here's why Jesus also is confronting the church at Pernigam. They had started to adopt a system of having priests and people. Of having the priests that are over the people. And the people being somewhere off down here a little bit insignificant. It was a system of the priest being the ones who know what the Word of God says, and we will tell the rest of you what it means. Don't bother reading the Bible. It's a system that is still prevalent today in some denominations in our world because there are some denominations that do that. They have a priesthood, and they don't encourage their members to read the Bible. They want everyone to be dependent upon a priest to tell them what they ought to believe based upon what the Bible says. Now, some people think the word really refers to them just believing and practicing idol worship and stuff like that. Whatever it means, it, we're told this clearly. Back when Jesus talked to the church at Ephesus, the first letter that we looked at, Jesus said, I hate their practices. So they had something taking place in the church at Pernigam that Jesus says, I hate. Here's the deal again. If Jesus hates it, I ought to hate it. If Jesus hates it, you ought to hate it. If Jesus is for it, you ought to be for it. And I ought to be for it. And Jesus confronts this church because they had become a worldly church, a lenient church. They were winking at sin. And, and Jesus says, listen, I know you're in a difficult culture. I know for the most part you're a church that has been serving me. You've been standing for me even in the face of persecution. But he says, You've got some wrong doctrine that's leading you in the wrong direction. Now, I know I'm really out of time, but, I, but, but you, you have to get this. And here's an application. Please listen and please get. The church at Pernigam was doing pretty good standing against outside persecution. Did you get that? They were. I mean, man, they threw the pastor in an oven, and the people were still standing for Jesus before his name. So since outside persecution didn't work, the enemy had another approach. Let's get them to believe false doctrine inside the church. I, I, I've tried persecution and that didn't work. They stood strong. So let's get them to believe stuff that's not right. And if we can get them to believe stuff that's not right, then they'll be living wrong. They will have wrong actions in their life. And that's the exact same thing the enemy is trying in the church in our day and time. Honest, guys, think about this. If we found out the government absolutely wanted to shut us down, now some of you would get scared and wouldn't show up. I'm sorry, I'm showing up and they can put me in jail. That is not going to work with me. And for most of you, I don't believe that would work with you. I believe you'd still be standing for Jesus. But you know what? If the enemy can slip in some false teaching and false doctrine into your heart, then he's accomplished what he wanted to accomplish by having persecution from the outside because he has you living a wrong life.
And that's why Jesus threatens them. And he says, straighten up or I'm going to come and fight against you with this sharp sword out of my mouth. Jesus said he would come and fight against the church. So what are we supposed to do with all this today? Well, did you catch what Jesus told them to do? Jesus told them to repent. He said repent. And the word repent literally means to think differently. Some people get a wrong concept about repent. They think repent means, well, all right, I have to remember all the sins that I've committed, and I have to ask God to forgive me for all of those sins in order for me to repent. You see, there's a problem with that. Maybe maybe you're better than me, but I'll be honest with you, I can't remember all the sins I've ever committed. Can you? That's not what repent means. Repent means we have a change of mind and we're agreeing with God that He's right and we're wrong. That we're sinners and we need Him. So here, he looks at this church. He's not talking to the lost ones again. He's writing a letter to the church, and he tells the church in Pergamum, you need to repent. You need to think differently than you're thinking. You need to change your mind, and you need to agree with me. And you need to quit allowing those wrong practices and wrong doctrines there and quit being a worldly church, because if you don't repent, I'm going to come and fight against you. Guys, I'll be honest with you, that is a fight that we lose. One of our, one of our young guys, was, we were kind of kidding earlier, so he's got an abscess tooth and everything, and you know, talking about, well, you know, I was telling him he needs to get to the dentist, and, and I'll get that taken care of. That can really go into your sinuses and cause a problem. And he said, you know, they probably have to do a root canal and stuff like that. I was really encouraging him, you know, uh, about that. And, and I said, or, you know, you, you can kind of, you know, get it taken out or whatever. I said, I guess I can knock it out from you, you know, and, you know, just kidding with him. And he said, well, I, I think I want to get somebody bigger than you to hit me if I'm going to knock it out. And I said, hey, I probably hit harder than you think I do. Can I tell you something? Jesus hits harder than you might think. And if Jesus says, you better quit some stuff, we better quit it because he says, I'll come and fight against you. I I don't want to fight Jesus, do you? The band's getting ready to come and play in just a moment. So today, he tells us we need to repent. We need to change the way we're thinking. We need to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves, do I, do you, do we have any wrong beliefs in our life? And see, here's the deal with that. You might not even understand it. You might even know you have a, not know you have a wrong belief or a wrong doctrine that you're holding to. But during this time, in just a moment, I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to help you identify any wrong belief that you have, any wrong doctrine that you're holding to. And here's why. It will lead to wrong actions. It will trip you up. It will mess up your life. So just maybe you need to come this morning and say, God, help me identify anything that's wrong in my life. Maybe you need to identify some wrong actions that you know are there. I mean, it could be sexual immorality, what he was talking about in this passage of Scripture or whatever. But maybe there's some issue. It might just be you're not reading your Bible enough. You're not praying enough. But there's something that Jesus has against you. Jesus looked at a group of believers and he said, Hey, you're doing all this stuff and I noticed it and it's really good, but I've got something against you. Maybe today you have to admit to yourself and to God that he has something against you and ask him to forgive you for it. Maybe you need to trust Christ as your Savior for the first time. Because as I said earlier, Jesus can be your Savior now or your judge later. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray right now, you help us just to listen to you. And God, allow you to show us where we are. Father, if there's some here that don't know you and they've never trusted Christ as Savior. Help them right now to see that you love them enough to go to the cross and die on the cross for their sins. Help them to trust in you right now. 
so you can be their savior and not their judge later in life. Father, those of us that already know you, God, help us to evaluate our beliefs, what we're holding to, what we believe in. God, maybe even challenge us now and and ask us if, if persecution hit, like these churches were facing in Asia Minor, God, would we be willing to stand for you as we should? God, if we heard that a pastor was put in an oven and cooked to death this week, how many of us would show up and worship you next Sunday? Father, if there are active sins and lives here today, I pray right now in this still moment while we pray, while we reflect before you, God, I pray if there's sexual immorality or whatever it might be in a life, God, that you would help them to repent of that, to agree with you that it's wrong, that it dishonors you, that it's a trick that Satan wants to use to trip us up just like he used it to trip up the children of Israel. So, Father, help us to repent of anything today that's in our lives that should not be there. But we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus looked at the church and he said, Nevertheless, I've got something against you. I I don't know what it is he may have against you today. And I understand because of what he was talking about, sexual immorality, someone's thinking, man, I ain't moving today because people think I'm guilty of that. Hey, all of us probably are guilty of something. All of us have things that Jesus says, I've got something against you. So I'm going to help you out a little bit. I'm going to kneel and pray to start with myself. (laughs) If God's speaking to your heart and you know there's something he has against you, why not bring it to him this morning? We stand in the band place. You are listening to sermon audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.